Um, if you are new to us, we take a moment as the kids um, are having fun together and just to open up the story of the Bible. And uh, we believe that there's many stories that are told, many ways we understand the world, and maybe you have lots of different ideas and thoughts about what you think about the world. We, as followers of Jesus, have been taken up into this incredible story we read in the Bible, which finds its focus and center on the good news of Jesus and that he is the one true king of the one true story. And so each moment when we gather together, we try and engage with that story. We try and understand it, try and see how do we live that out together. So if this is new for you, just kind of ask questions uh, and think about it, have discussions over, over lunch afterwards, um, and uh, we'll see how it goes. And what we've been doing together is we've been um, doing a series called Reset which is looking at what are we saying yes to as individuals and as a family, as a church family and as, as, as families together. And that uh, we've done a lot of different ways that we've been saying yes. And this morning I want to talk a little bit, building on what Johnny spoke about last week, uh, on what it means to say yes to Jesus in terms of his heart for the margins. So what does it mean to say yes to the margins? Johnny last week uh, did a wonderful job of just talking about how God is always at work around us and he's always speaking. And he's ready and waiting for, for opportunities to pour out his love or to pour out his mercy. And he loves, for whatever reason, that we don't understand it, but he loves to use us um, to partner with him to express his love to the world. And so I want to kind of just hone in on a part of that that's particularly important to us. And it's, it's really good every so often just to refocus on what's important to us. And life has a way of causing chaos, doesn't it? And it kind of causes us to drift and just get focused on what's around us and what's immediate. And often the things that are most important get lost in that. And it's just really good every so often just to recalibrate and say, okay, God, what are the things that are important? And what is it that we need to say yes to and focus on? So I've been thinking a little bit about that this week. And there's one thing that God's always called us to as a, as a group. We are one of many churches across the city, not the only one. And we play a part in his story, just like they do. But one thing that's really close to God's heart and something that we've always sought to put out in front, or front and center is God's heart for those that are on the fringe or the margins. And that we would see the marginalized love that that we would see the brokenhearted healed and the powerless or those that are stuck and beaten in life empowered to live with possibility and purpose. And we believe that Jesus, when he gets involved in people's life, does that. And he loves to invite us to be part of that story. So I love to pray. I know we've done a lot of praying, but that was important too. So I love to pray because really my words are, are okay. <laughs> but really God's heart and what he wants to share is much more important. And so my when I'm praying, what I'm doing is asking God to take charge and for me just to be aware of what he's doing. So let me do that for a minute and then we're going to read the Bible together. So God, I thank you that you're always working. I pray this morning beyond what I seek to, to say and articulate and to throw out there. Um, that you would, you would speak to us, that you would move our hearts for what moves yours. That uh, you would open up the Bible to us and the stories of Jesus to help us to live in your way with more effectiveness and more courage. Ask it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it. Or if you have a phone, you probably have a Bible app on it. Or I think I might even have it on the back screen there, um, which you can follow along. I want to read a really 
a famous story, even if you haven't been around church before or around religious settings, you may have come across this story before. You may have heard it in our culture because we kind of get grew up in a religious sort of culture in Ireland. So uh, you probably come across this story. But Jesus tells a lot of stories. And he always has a purpose in telling those stories that are important for us to understand because they're in a moment. He's telling them for a reason. And sometimes we lose that. And the story we're going to look at this morning is one of a series of stories that Luke records for us that Jesus tells about lost things. And he tells it for a particular reason, which we'll see in a moment. And Johnny last week talked about the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. And uh, he, he shared, and I'm going to steal some of his cultured Rembrandt pictures. He always seems to grab these like beautiful historic cultural things. So I'm going to steal some of those for this morning. Um, but he shares a series of stories, and I want to focus on the first one that Luke records for us. And in the first story, and it's found in Luke chapter 15, um, it sets the context for why Jesus tells the story in the first place. Um, so if you want to follow along, you can, and then I want to take a moment just to unpick it together. And so it says this, now the tax collectors and sinners, that, that phrase, tax collectors and sinners, is like a catch-all phrase that the culture of the time, ancient Near East, would have understood. The early century Palestine had a phrase, and so it's not just tax collectors and sinners, it's a, it's a group of people, we'll come back to that. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Okay, take note of that for a minute. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so there are two sets of religious leaders at the time, were saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. They're not happy. They're not, they're not comfortable with the way Jesus is interacting with people and the types of people that he's interacting with. So he says this, so Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it up on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So it's quite a famous story. There's lots of religious language in there that you may have come across. What happens sometimes in our culture, because we've kind of had these stories around the place, is certain phrases become culturalized. What I mean by that is we understand them in a certain way, but we maybe lose sometimes what they were originally intended to mean. And so what I want to do for a moment is just kind of go back to what is Jesus getting at here? And then to ask the question, what does that mean for us individually and as a church community in terms of our response. And the first thing I want you to notice, I want to notice, is Jesus hangs out with people on the fringe. And most people at the time that are in charge, religiously in charge, aren't comfortable with it. So he's making people who are the religious elite or who are in charge of, of religious life, which was the same as social life, the way it operated, weren't comfortable with it. Jesus hung out with people on the margins. He hung out with people on the fringe. 
In early century Palestine, the religious and the political leaders, like truthfully every expression of our society since and currently, <laughs> divide people into groups. Don't we? We have lots of ways to categorize people, <laughs> you know, whether they're the left or the right, whether they're this or that. We, we know about this in, in Ireland. I won't go into that and drop on any minds. But we, we like to categorize people into who's in and who's out. Like who's in the in group and who's in the out group? Who's the person that I can trust? Who's the person that I have to be suspicious of? And we just do it, maybe that's just to protect ourselves as human beings, we don't know. But in the context of, of any life, we tend to do that. Who are the people that I am comfortable with? Who are the people that I am uncomfortable with? The in group and the out group. And in the context of this, of this early century Palestine, um, life that Jesus was kind of interacting with, and their spiritual and social life, they'd done that too. They, they categorized people into the in-group and the out-group. And they expressed this in different terms than maybe we would, but they expressed it as being unclean or clean. They had lots of different ways to categorize whether someone was considered clean or unclean. If you were clean, you were in. If you were unclean, you were out. Righteous and unrighteous, good and bad. We might say those who were deserving and those who are undeserving of help, kindness or grace. Those who are worthy, those who are unworthy. We have lots of different language through which we categorize people, but that had happened. And what had gone on is there were certain groups of people who were most on the fringe, i.e. not just out, but out, out. They were out of the circle that they were supposed to be in. And they were excluded from social life, they were excluded from religious life, and they were regarded with disdain. And the Pharisees here were a religious sect who, who set out at the very beginning of, of what they kind of stood for was this belief or conviction that God had promised through the prophets, which we'll read in a moment, to return to his people powerfully by his presence and send his anointed king, what we call the Messiah or the Christ, to rescue his people, the Israelites, from a cruel oppressor and set up his kingdom on the earth. So they believed that God wanted to do that, but for some reason that hadn't happened. And the reason that it hadn't happened is that the people had not followed the law closely enough. And so they, as a sect, began to religiously, zealously follow every detail of the religious law to the hilt. And then they created a whole stream of other laws that the people would seek to follow also, so that God might come and visit his people again. So that was their whole mantra for being. And so anyone who didn't follow those laws, who, or who was unable to follow those laws, very quickly became on the outside. And so you got this term which was coined sinners, which was basically people who did not follow the law or who had been broken and beaten by society or who had made poor choices and ended up doing things that were regarded as unrighteous and therefore were pushed out to the fringes of society. And then you had this group who were tax collectors who were basically in bed with the government that they hated. They were seen as sellouts and they were making money off the people. And so you get these two groups that are categorized as out. They're on the margins, they're on the fringe. Nobody likes them. Nobody wants to hang out with them. And in fact, they are the reason that God is not here. They are the problem in our society. We need to find a way to fix it. And so that was the kind of belief system. And Jesus, 
who is actually someone who comes in and claims to be this anointed king, this Messiah that God has promised, the presence of God among his people, starts hanging out with him. And nobody likes it. It's like, this is not in our box. This is not something we are comfortable with. This is not the way that it should go. This is not the God that we understand. God should not be hanging out with these people. He should be judging them. This is not right. And so Jesus tells them a story, a series of stories. And the first one is this story, which I just read to you, the story of the lost sheep. And what you might not know or what you may know is that this story is not a new story that Jesus invented. Jesus is very clearly and very intentionally retelling a story using imagery that the religious leaders that he's speaking to would have understood. He's quoting from the prophets that spoke of a God who went after lost sheep. Let me read some of it to you. Jeremiah 50, who's one of the prophets who foretells what God does, says this. 6 to 7, he's speaking of this day when God would show up and rescue his people. Remember the thing that I told you about. It says this, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. And he goes on, he says, they have forgotten their fold. All who find them have devoured them. So he's describing his people who are lost, about to go into exile in the moment that Jeremiah is writing. And he says, they're lost sheep. They don't know what to do or where to go. And they are scattered. And everywhere they are scattered, they are getting destroyed. And then he says this, the reason that they are scattered is that my shepherds, i.e. the ones who are supposed to lead my people, the religious leaders of the day, have led them astray. They would have understood this passage. They would have known what Jesus was talking about. And he's challenging them. What are you doing? when you criticize me for hanging out with these people. Then he tells another, there's another uh, prophet, Ezekiel, who goes a little bit further. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 34. Um, again, another prophet who speaks of the day of the Lord, the, the day where God would send his anointed king to come and be among his people. And he says, this son of man, he, he, Ezekiel has a series of visions that God shows him about the future. And this is one of them. It says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Again, it's challenging the leaders. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Again, in that moment, challenging the religious leaders who had much, but held back much. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled the people. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. So you get the picture that they would have understood. These are pictures that, that the religious leaders certainly and most of the people that were in earshot would have understood and known because they got brought up memorizing the Torah and the prophets. And then listen to this, this is really interesting. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And it goes on in verse 11, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep 
and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. So Jesus isn't just telling a new story. He is saying something super intentional. He's saying that you think that God is coming to punish these people? Actually, the God that I know, the God that was foretold about, and actually the God that you see in front of you, he is the one that goes after lost sheep, who seeks those on the margins who have been scattered and distant, who feel like they're far away from God and his life. And he's directly challenging their way of thinking. He's trying to turn it on its head. He's saying that you have a wrong idea of God. Actually, this is the very place that God is hanging out. You think that God despises these people and, at their do- and lays at their door the blame for all of Israel's ills. But I tell you, as the prophets foretold, God is the one searching and seeking out the sheep. He has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless without anyone to lead them. Their shepherds have ruled them with force and harshness. They've looked out for their own interests, for self-preservation, and neglected to lead my people well. And so in the story, God steps in as the one who goes in search of the sheep. And so Jesus is telling this story, and what's he saying? I am the good shepherd who goes in search of the sheep. That's what God is like. And I'm trying to say, this is not a new idea. This is something you missed. In the prophets later, he'll say that I am the good shepherd who lays his lifetime for the sheep. So the first thing I want you to understand is Jesus hangs out with people on the margin because God hangs out with people on the margins. Second thing is God's heart is moved for those on the margins. He's actually moved emotionally, compassionately for those that seem like they're on the fringe. And when we say yes to Jesus, which we've been looking at together as a community, when we say yes to following his voice to go where the shepherd leads, then this is where he leads to go after those who are on the margins, on the fringe, who are considered unworthy, undeserving, or on the outside of his love. So question for you, just to think about for a minute, to bring it home. Who are those for you and for me? So we can talk about this phrase, sinners and tax collectors all day, but what, what does that look like now? Like who's the out group? in your life? Who are the people that you feel uncomfortable with, maybe, or who seem like they're on the fringe of society, socially, economically marginalized, maybe they're the least likely group to step into a church or religious setting? Who are those that are on the fringe? And what does it mean for us to move towards them, both individually and as a church community? What does it mean for us to catch God's heart for the margins. Maybe it's those who are lost in religion that are burnt out on trying to keep the laws that they've been told they have to keep in order for God to love them and approve of them, but they don't know the love of Jesus and their wife and haven't learned what it is to follow him. Maybe that's those who are on the outside. Maybe it's the socially and economically marginalized. They're always on the fringe, right? Maybe it's the hurting, the brokenhearted, the bruised and the battered by life, those that have felt like they've been dealt a raw deal and struggled to cope with it. Maybe it's those battling with addiction. Maybe it's those that are in and out of prison, chronically ill. Maybe it's people that are struggling without hope, maybe struggling with mental health issues. 
Persons experiencing trauma who never had someone ever looking out for them, searching for them, who life is chewed up and spat out. Maybe it's those who feel disregarded by God or on the fringes of God's love. Maybe it's those who identify as LGBTQ+. Asylum seekers, refugees, those who are of another religious group, the right, the left, the sex worker, the trafficked, the enslaved, the lonely, the angry, the bitter, those living on the street. I could probably spend 30 minutes talking about different categories of people who are on the fringe, but I want to ask you the question. I want to ask me the question. What does that look like for you? Like, who are those in your sphere that actually are on the outside and that maybe God's heart is moved towards? And what does it look like for us to catch that? We're called to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, to tend to the injured, to strengthen the weak, to free the captive and the bound. The third thing I want to say real briefly is Jesus invites us when we say yes to him, to catch his heartbeat for a lost humanity. Like this whole set of stories that Jesus tells the lost sheep and then there's a story about a lost coin that someone goes in search of and then there's a story of the lost son are a direct challenge to religious leaders and to us, but they're also laced with compassion if you read them. Like they're desiring to help even the religious leaders around him catch the heart of the father towards those he loves. And in the last story that he tells, which Johnny did last week, he, Jesus puts this story, you may not know it, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but go and read Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son. Basically, the two brothers in the story, the father, um, that one brother asks for inheritance, and he goes and he leaves the father, and he, he messes it all up and throws it on all sorts of mess, and his life is broken and, and shatters, and he ends up walking back to the father. And he has this speech which is like, oh, I just, I don't deserve to be called a son. I'm just your, your slave. And the father runs out to meet him and he throws a, co- a, a robe on him, gives him a ring in his finger and throws a party. But there's another brother in the story, <clears throat> which you may well know of. And I know we've talked about this often, so it's not new for some of you. But I think Jesus tells this story for the religious leaders and maybe for us who are steeped in religion at times. And he, at the end of the story, the older brother who's symbolic of the religious one, is angry um, because he sees his brother who's wasted his life on foolish choices and made a total mess and embarrassed his father coming back and the father generously killing a fattened calf, throwing a party for him and treating him like he's just returned and, 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 and like the greatest thing ever. And he's angry, like he's seething angry. Like, and he won't go into the party, he won't participate in the festivities. And the father comes out to meet him. And, um, and the brother kind of gets on his, his high horse and he starts saying, Look, Father, like, I've served you all these years and I never disobeyed you. And you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's angry. It's unfair. It feels like I've done everything right and this brother's done everything wrong and yet he gets the party and I don't? Like, no way. That's not fair. Like, that's not right. I'm, I'm angry. I'm seething. I've played by all the rules and it hasn't worked out. And then I think the father's answer is beautifully tender and I think in the story that Jesus tells, it's a, a least, it's least with compassion for us and for the religious leaders. It says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad 
for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's almost trying to say that it catch the Father's heart here. There are people who don't know what God my Father is like, who are lost and have been beaten and broken by life and have made poor choices that have fed into that. But I am not angry with them. I am waiting for them. And in fact, in the story of the lost sheep, I am searching for them. And I want you, if you follow me, if you say that I want to follow the way of Jesus, I want you to catch my heart for those people and to go with me and to see how I might express my love to them. So the fourth thing is, calls us to go and search for those who appear far from them. A few years ago, um, or maybe I've shared this story a few times, but um, one of my friends decided it would be a great idea, don't know why, to go to, uh, to put up a stall at a, a mind-body-spirit fair. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these things. Um, he thought it would be a great idea to do that and to just decide to pray for people. Um, he was a wee bit out there anyway, so like you can understand it. But it wasn't somewhere where many of us who decided we would join him were comfortable. It was somewhere that, uh, in, in, in regards to my experience of religious upbringing, I was taught was dangerous and perhaps even evil, and I needed to be wary of it. Um, and so anyway, we went with this guy who, who, who decided this was a good idea. felt like God was asking him to do it. We had to change some of our religious stuff jargon um, and make language that was relevant for the people that were there. Um, but we, that's what we did. We set up a stall. We had Reiki healers, crystal sellers, card readers. It was a place that at first I felt hugely uncomfortable and I was thinking, I shouldn't be here. This is not the place that I ought to be. And yet I discovered very quickly it was a place where lost people were seeking for something and God was looking to show his love. And I didn't think very long in offering to pray for some of these people that I discovered that God wanted to express his heart toward them. And I needed to get over my religious tightness, <laughs> is that word for it? And, and recognize that his heart is for those that, for me, felt like they're on the margins. And it led that evening to a few of us who used to go out in the city and just interact with people and ask and chat with them about God. And it was a bit random. I don't always do that. But um, I've been doing this psychic fair as they call it in the in the day and um i had this image as we were praying in the, the place that we met before we went out in belfast of a group of young people um who were kind of like gothically dressed and like god wanted to do something there and i would never entertain that idea because look at me like i am not <laughs> i am not like i'm too posh i'm too like weird it's not the kind of person that starts conversation with a group of young people here. God's so outside of my comfort zone. But because we've been in this space that already got outside of our comfort zone, I'm like, well, what the heck? Let's just do it. So um, I shared this story before, but we went up to this group, and I had no idea how to even open the conversation. But because we've been doing what we called spiritual readings, which was really praying for people, just using a different language to describe it, I just threw my hands open. I think I've shared this before. And prompted, I think, by God, at least I'm going to say it was, I just said, does anybody want a spiritual reading? And they're all like, whoa, whoa. And this girl jumps forward and says, yeah, do me, do me. So we began to pray for her, and I had a picture of her, um, and a, a word about her life that was really accurate that God had showed me. And she began to weep, and I, and I just I began to share what I felt like God wanted to show her. And it was specifically about being a bringer of hope to somebody that she was struggling with that was suicidal, that she was caring for. 
and God really met with her, began to open this whole conversation. And my friends were with me also and had a, a picture for someone who was having nightmares. We talked to them for a moment, asked them what was going on. They were, weren't able to get any sleep because they were tormented by these horrendous nightmares that wouldn't go. And so we prayed for her. God began to meet with her and she was weeping. And 45 minutes of what I can only describe as probably being the most tangible experience of where I felt God show up in a moment through me. And um, there are many moments that are not as dramatic as that, that God has done just as profound things. But I share that because I was so outside of my comfort zone. But what was really interesting was the thing that this guy said to me when we left. He said this, like normally we don't want to talk to people about Jesus. And like the people that come and talk to us, they're just, it's really uncomfortable. And, and he said this, I, don't, I didn't know I wanted to talk about God but you guys have talked about Jesus in a different way. And I don't know that anybody began a relationship or a friendship with him. I don't know where they went, whether they continued in the same vein or not, but I do know that in that moment, God was seeking lost people that were on the fringe. And I, in my prejudice, probably would have never gone near them except for my friend who challenged me the day before. I share that story just because that's my example, but you may have other things in your life that are much less dramatic. And also, people that are at the school gate, <laughs> in my workplace, maybe in my neighborhood, maybe they're not like teenage gods, maybe they're just people that are a little bit different. Maybe they're from a different background, maybe they're not um, someone that I know how to strike up a conversation with. Maybe, maybe there's rumors about them in the community and therefore I am reluctant to go near them. What if those are people that God's heart is beating for? And then let's ask it as us corporately. What if God was seeking those people out? And then as a church community, what does that look like for us? Like here are the people that God is seeking out in Derry and Donegal that are on the margins that he's asked us as a community to look to search out and care for and communicate the love of God to. And may we always keep that front and center. Patricia St. John tells this story of a young man who's brought up in a loving family but gets caught up in his young teenage years in drugs and becomes addicted and he makes some more poor pure choices, ends up dealing and with further poor choices ends up being quite a notorious um, well, I could say gangster, but notorious um, dealer and trafficker and has done some pretty awful things. Um, in a number of years, he makes his way back to his home, pretty broken, just out of prison, having paid for a lot of the stuff that he'd done and searching for something. And he ends up back at his house and he's watching the house from a distance, but he can't pluck up the courage to go and knock the door because he hasn't contacted his parents even though they sought to reach out to him over and over and he feels so ashamed of the stuff that he's done in his life they wouldn't want to be near him so anyway he puts this note through the door where he says if i'm going to come here tomorrow at two o'clock if you are okay to see me put a white handkerchief in the corner of the the door um, or the window and then i'll know that it's okay and so he shows up the next day and and like there's not a white handkerchief there, but every single window is full of sheets, white sheets hanging from every possible place, covered in the house. 
just communicating, I don't want to make sure you don't miss this. Or like, this is, of course, we want to see. And I love that story. It's, it's, it's the heart of God. It's similar to the prodigal, prodigal son story that God's heart is beating for those that even have done some stuff that's pretty horrendous because he is so full of mercy that he's expressed towards us. Okay. Hopefully you've caught the heart of that story. What I want to do for two, three minutes to finish is well, what do we do with that? Like how do we actually like not just be moved by God's heart for the margins? What do we actually do with that? What do we begin? How do we begin to step towards that? And I just, I've been thinking about this personally and for me because I feel like God is challenging me to step out of some of my comfort and some of my kind of safety nets that I've built and just asking me to step a little bit. So I just thought, what would I do? And, and so hopefully some of this might be helpful. So here's a few things. First question I want you to ask yourself is who is in front of you? Like, where has he placed you? So like, I know I shared a dramatic story, but just forget about that one for a moment. And don't make it too dramatic. Just think really simply, like, who's right in front of me now? Like, in my world, when I walk, from work to from, when I'm in work, when I'm at school, like here are the people in my sphere of influence that God is saying, like, I want you to pay attention to them. And what if some of us even trying to get out of the place that we're in have actually been placed there because God wants to communicate something of his love in that setting. So who's, the, who's in front of you? Where has he placed you? And in the moment we're going to close to pray, and I want to pay attention, you to pay attention to who pops into your mind. And then you can do that throughout the week. So who's in front of you? And then the second thing is really simple. What do you have? Like what's in your hand? So often I think when we think of moving to the margins or stepping outside of our comfort zone, we make it so dramatic and so impossible that it feels like we're stuck. Or I don't have any more emotional resources. I don't, like I don't, you don't, I don't have any more uh, financial resources, things are tight. Like, I don't have anything to give. I don't have any time. Like, I am chocked full of time. And so I get that. Like, I live there. This is not, like, this is not asking you to do things that you cannot do. But I want you to ask this question, what do I have? Because you do have something. Might not be much, but you do have something. And this is what I'm noticing with God, and it's through a story in, in Mark. What you have is enough. If you take what you have for the person that God has put in front of you and you ask God to bless it and to use it, it will be enough for you and for them. It's a story in Mark where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And it's coming after this moment where the disciples are exhausted. It says that they didn't even have time to eat because people were coming to them over and over again. So Jesus says, let's go away and find some space. So they go away in the boat and they end up at another part of the the area but everybody's followed them and so they get interrupted in their attempts to get some emotional rest and it says this listen to the statement jesus saw them and he saw that they were sheep that were harassed and helpless without a shepherd notice the connection to our story and he had compassion on them and so he began to teach them and then later on in the evening there's nowhere to eat and so he comes and he says to his disciples all right the disciples say, look, you're going to have to send them home because of nothing to eat. And he says, you feed them. 
And they're like, are you serious, Jesus? Like, where are we going to get the food to feed 5,000 people? You want us to go and spend all the money that we've been given on the, in the town? And he's like, no, I'm not asking that. What do you have? That's the question he asks. What do you have? So they go and they find what they have, and they have two, you know the story, <laughs> probably, five loaves and two fish. It's a children's story. And he says, okay. And he blesses it, gives it to the disciples, and they hand it out. Not only does it feed the 5,000, but there are how many baskets left over 12 basketfuls. What I'm discovering is if you partner with God in this, you ask who's in front of you, and you simply ask what do you have, even if it feels like being more so. You give it to God, you ask him to bless it, and you respond to his heart, that it'll not only be enough for that person, but it'll be enough for you too. Maybe that sounds a little bit too simplistic, but I think I'm discovering that the times where I'm exhausted is the times where I've sought to do and love and care and serve and help people in my own strength and I just haven't had it. But when I start in his heart and I begin to ask him, what do you have? Because I don't have very much. Then he begins to do something. And it's always out of his resources and never at the expense of mine. Does that make sense? Now that doesn't mean it won't cost you. And here's the, last, the second thing. And sometimes it will cost you discomfort, but that's okay. Third thing, start somewhere, however small or seemingly insignificant. My friend says, imperfect action is always better than perfect inaction. <laughs> so just do something. Like it doesn't have to be, it can be clumsy. It can be like standing with your hands held high in front of a bunch of gods fumbling some stupid statement. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be dramatic. It can be simple, but just do something. Just something small and ask God to do something with it. And then this is the bit that I want to kind of leave you with. Pray. Like, I know that seems like a cop-out to some of us action people, but what I'm discovering is when you prioritize that as like the starting point for everything, something happens that's different. God begins to direct your heart. He begins to resource you. He begins to open up what's in front of you. And it, rather than it being this exhausting duty that you need to complete, it becomes a partnership of love with him. And so I want to encourage you, pray. And then ask God how you can be a response to that, an answer to that. And there's this prayer app that 24-7 prayer put out. Um, Karen and Steph have been sending me different podcasts, and so I have to thank them for this. But it's called Inner Room. And as a really simple prayer rhythm, they're kind of encouraging people to develop the offices of prayer. So prayer in the morning, prayer in the middle of the day, pray at the end of the day. It's not long, it's not complicated. Um, but the one in the middle is the, the lost. Pray for the lost. And it's a real simple meditation on your, on your phone that just invites you to allow God to turn your heart towards those on the margins. And like I've been doing it, what, three days? And like I haven't really done anything, but something is shifting inside my heart in that simple two minutes that I give to God to open my heart to those that are on the margins. So why not download that app or do something of your own? Prayer draws us into God's involvement in the brokenness of, of, of the world on his terms, not ours. So it allows us to begin to partner with what he is doing, not what we feel like we ought to be doing and get exhausted with. Does that make sense? And embrace the discomfort.
because doing stuff with God is, for some reason, always uncomfortable, but it always reaps some beautiful rewards. I love to stand and pray to finish. If you want to stand with me, what I would love to do, just very simply for, for a minute, is I love to pray together a public prayer. We don't do this often in our community. Um, we're not the most liturgical in the world, but I, I kind of love a little bit of liturgy every so often. And so I love to pray this out loud together as a kind of way to close. And it's just like a public declaration or an invitation for God to, to speak to us. So there's three parts. Uh, um, and I'll count this in and then we'll pray it together. Um, so one, two, three. Father, Son, Spirit, bring to mind people you know who are far from God. And as they come to mind, I pray for them now. God, you are the good shepherd. Go after them. Restore them. Bring them to saving life. That's the first part. You're asking God to stir your heart. And then you're asking God to go. And this is the second part. That's said together. God, will you give me a heart for the lost, seeing as you see and loving as you love? I confess thy anything that's getting in the way of my compassion today. I'll leave a moment of quiet just for you to do that. Let's pray the last word together. And now, Lord, send us out with your empowering presence to incarnate our prayers, pursuing and loving the lost. You can grab a seat. It's not complicated what I have shared this morning, and I encourage you to just do one thing this week that moves you in that direction. And I just had a wee uh, reminder pop up on my phone do you have five minutes to pray? It's this inner room app. Do you have five minutes to pray for the lost? So there you go. That's it working. And <laughs> I didn't time it that way. I just haven't. Um, so do something that moves you in that direction. And we're going to actually take Advent to hone in on this a little bit. Because <coughs> Advent is a moment where we pray, come Lord Jesus. And where God came and incarnated, if you want the technical word, dwelled among his people. And so what does it look like for us as his people to do the same? And so we'll, we'll hone in this a little bit more. But can I encourage you to take one step this week and see what God does and then share your stories with me? You up for that? Okay, amen. Guys, really love you to have you. If you kids, it would be amazing if you could go and pick them up and release our kids' leaders. Don't rush off. We'd love you to hang about for a cup of coffee or tea. If uh, you are family here, there's a lot of new people. Why don't you make sure that everybody gets in, knows where they're going. Um, and... Other than that, if you would like anybody to pray for you for any need that you have, we would love to do that. Just hang around on one of these front seats and we'll make sure someone gets to pray for you. Have a good day. Thank you for joining us at Foyle Vineyard Church. We love walking out this adventure of being a family together on mission. If you've joined us for the first time today, we'd love to connect with you further. Head over to our website, www.foilvineyard.co.uk and click I'm New to keep up to date with all the ways in which you can get involved with this busy family. Have a wonderful week and God bless.